0: Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Craft coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we begin a new study. huh? Last week we wrapped up our treatment on the book of Revelation, a study that had us in the book for, what, over four and a half months? I mean, we went through it verse by verse, and it was so well received that what I thought I would do uh, is hit another book. And the book that I decided upon was, well, two books. The first and second letters of St. Paul to the Corinthians, and we are going to do what we did with the book Revelation. We are going to go through these two epistles, verse by verse. There is so much to get into. Really, it was down to these two letters to the Church of Corinth or St. Paul's letter to the Church of Rome, and I just thought, based upon the richness Of those two letters that I would hit these two letters first and maybe Romans down the road. Now, that being said, I do want to be able to get into other subject matters. So, what is new about Seeds of Truth Radio is we're going to be going through Paul's first and second letters to the Church of Corinth from Monday to Wednesday. And I'm leaving Thursday open for special topic, subject matter. And uh, I will let you know what that is all about in the next few days. I'm still going back and forth on some subject matter. But for now, over the next three days, we are going to start our study on Paul's first and second letters to the Corinthians. And again, this is going to allow us, afford us the opportunity to really get into so much of what the church is about today. You know, the book of Revelation, while from the outsider's view, might be confined to very specific subject matter. If you join me from one day to the next, you discover that really the book Revelation is more than just about the end times. In many ways, it is a map for everyday life. Well, if the book Revelation deals with everyday subject matter, Paul's first and second letters to the Church of Corinth deal with that and more. There's so much in these two letters. So, um, I'm really excited to start this study, and, and doing so with an understanding that you are going to have many questions. So like always, if you have any questions, any comments, any observations, any suggestions about what I'm doing here on Seas of Truth, what I'm talking about here on Seas of Truth, please don't hesitate to email me. You can email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at Joe Holcraft. spelled J-O-E-H-O-L-L. C-R-A-F-T dot org. Just hit the contact tab there, the contact link, and send your message on its way, and I will gladly and joyfully respond to anything you might have for me. As I have in the past, I will either take your question and respond immediately to it, or wait until it has its proper context in the letter that I'm studying. All right, now, if we're going to do this right, that is a study on these epistles... We have to first appreciate how to interpret sacred scripture. So at least the first part of this evening is really going to be a review of the senses of scripture and how one ought to approach sacred scripture. And as last time with the book of Revelation, I was pulling from some of the major commentaries, the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture the uh, Ignatius Catholic Study Bible and others. I will be doing the same thing with this study, especially as it relates to getting into some of the historical circumstances of what we are talking about. But remember, always remember that this is going to benefit you the most when you spend time with the verses themselves. How are these verses speaking to you? How are these verses calling you to be a better version of who God is calling you to be? That your study on these two epistles to the Corinthians is just not reduced to what I'm saying, but out from your own study, how is what I'm saying uh, helping you or aiding you in your journey of better understanding? Again, just not this epistle, but how you apply it to your life. All right, with that, the senses of Scripture. Now, because the Bible has both divine and human authors, we are required To master a different sort of reading than we are used to, right? First, we must read Scripture according to its, what we call, literal sense, as we read any other human literature. At this initial stage, what are we doing? But striving to discover the meaning of the words and expressions used by the biblical writers as they were understood in their original setting and by their original recipients, huh? This means what? Well, among other things, that we do not interpret everything literally. Well, what do you mean, Joe? This is the literal sense. Well, (laughs) what does the literal sense convey? Does not the literal sense of sacred scripture, how the text is written, actually speak to the way in which some of the text is figurative or symbolic? Huh? We are always made to read sacred scripture according to the rules that govern its different literary forms of writing, right? For example, if it's a narrative, a poem, a letter, a parable, an apocalyptic vision, whatever kind of literature form it may be, we read it accordingly. The Church calls us to read the divine books in this way. Why? So as to ensure that we understand what the human authors were laboring to explain to God's people. Now, the literal sense, however, is not the only sense of sacred scripture, since we interpret its sacred pages according to the spiritual senses as well. And this is all drawn out in the Catechism. If you were to go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 101 to 130, you'll read about the literal and the spiritual sense. So reading the text in the light of the spiritual sense, we search out what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us, huh? beyond even what the human authors have consciously asserted. Whereas the literal sense of Scripture describes a historical reality, a fact, a precept, or event, the spiritual sense discloses deeper mysteries revealed through the historical realities. We could say what the soul is to the body, the spiritual senses are to the literal. You can distinguish them, but if you try to separate them, death immediately follows. The famous theologian von Balthasar once said that if you treat the Word of God exclusively in the literal sense, then you are treating the Word of God as a dead corpse. And why is that problematic? Well, because you and I both know the Word of God is living. Was not St. Paul the first to insist upon what we are talking about now and warn of its consequences? What do we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6? God has qualified us to be ministers of a new covenant. Did we just not talk about that last week as we were wrapping up our study on the book of Revelation? God has qualified us to be ministers of a new covenant, not in a written code, but in the Spirit, for the written code kills, but the Spirit gives life. So in Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth, chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, he's very much speaking to the literal sense and the spiritual sense. And again, what we find in the catechism recognizes three spiritual senses that stand upon the foundation of the literal sense, huh? The first is what we call the allegorical sense. It unveils the spiritual and prophetic meaning of biblical history. Allegorical interpretations thus reveal what but how persons, events, and institutions of sacred scripture can point beyond themselves towards greater mysteries yet to come or even display the fruits of mysteries already revealed. When you hear the word allegory, what do you think of? Maybe you think of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. Why? Because an allegory is the description of one thing under the image of another. And what the likes of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were wanting to do, essentially by using figures and images, is convey the story of Christ. They were using one thing so as to point to another thing. This is why Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia are great allegories of the Christian mystery. So again, allegory, the description of one thing under the image of another. Now, Christians have often read the Old Testament in this way to discover how the mystery of Christ himself in the New Covenant was once hid in the Old, and how the full significance of the Old Covenant was finally made manifest in the New. That essentially is St. Augustine. Allegorical significance is likewise latent in the New Testament, especially when you start to get into the life and deeds of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. I mean, because Christ is the head of the church and the source of her spiritual life, what was accomplished in Christ, the head, during his earthly life, prefigures what he continually produces in his members through grace. The allegorical sense, my friends, Builds up the virtue of faith. Builds up the virtue of faith. Okay, how about the second sense? Well, the second sense is what we call the moral sense. It reveals how the actions of God's people in the Old Testament and the life of Jesus in the New Testament prompt us, you and I, to form virtuous habits in our own lives. The moral sense is about going to sacred scripture and asking the question, What does this have to do with my personal journey of faith? And ultimately, how does it call me to be a better and stronger Christian? So the moral sense, then, draws from Scripture warnings against sin and vice, as well as inspirations to pursue what? Well, what is our foundational call? What is our foundational vocation but holiness and purity? Okay, how about this third sense? Now, stay with me here, because this third sense, I think, for some people can get a bit tricky. The third sense is what's called the anagogical sense. Anagogical is just simply a word that speaks to the future. So the anagogical sense points towards what? Upward. Upward to heavenly glory. What awaits us? It shows us how countless events in the Bible prefigure our final union with God in eternity, and how things that are seen on earth are only figures of things unseen in heaven. Okay, this is what the anagogical sense is about. In many ways, the anagogical sense dovetails beautifully the moral sense because in the light of both of them, we're reminded that we are to live with the end in mind. Huh? The moral sense challenges us to live with the end in mind and the anagogical sense, the sense that has us constantly thinking about the end, well, should have us living with the end in mind. And so, because the anagogical sense leads us to contemplate our destiny, what virtue does it build up? But the virtue of hope. So together with the literal sense, then these spiritual senses draw out the fullness of what God wants to give us through his word. And as such, comprise what the ancient Christian church would call the full sense of sacred scripture. And all of this means, my friends, that the deeds and events of the Bible are charged with meaning beyond what is immediately apparent to the reader. In essence, that meaning is what? But Jesus Christ and the salvation he died to give us. It is the Bible's divine author, the Holy Spirit, who could and did foretell the saving work of Christ. So the New Testament to not abolish the Old Testament. Rather, the New Testament fulfilled the Old Testament, and in so doing, it lifted the veil that was kept hidden for so long. And once the veil was removed, suddenly we see the world of the Old Covenant charged with grandeur. What do we intend to mean there when we speak to this grandeur? Well, (laughs) that water... Fire, clouds, gardens, trees, hills, doves, lambs, all of these things are memorable details in the history and poetry of Israel. But now, seen in the light of Christ, have new meaning, powerful meaning, sacramental meaning. And this way, we are made to interpret sacred scripture spiritually because the spiritual reading of scripture is nothing new. Again, the very first Christians read the Bible this way. What did St. Paul say in Romans chapter 5, verse 14? Did he not describe Adam as a type that prefigured Christ? What is a type? Well, what does the word mean? It comes from the Greek "typus," which means pattern or impression. I like to go to the image of a typewriter where that still letter will impress itself upon the canvas and leave a what? pattern. Figures in old covenant history have left an impression in salvation history. A pattern pointing towards what? Well, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So a type is a real person, a real place, a real thing, or a real event in the Old Testament that foreshadows something greater in the new. And this is where we get the word typology that we have spoken to so much about the study of types, the study of how the Old Testament prefigures Christ. If you were to turn to Galatians chapter 4 verse 24, Saint Paul draws deeper meaning out of Abraham's sons, declaring what this is in allegory. He is not suggesting that these events of the distant past never really happened. He is saying that the events both happened and signified something more glorious yet to come. Huh? The New Testament later describes the tabernacle of ancient Israel as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5. And how about just verses later in chapter 10 verse 1, where the author of Hebrews says the Mosaic law is a shadow of the good things to come. How about Saint Peter? He notes that Noah and his family were saved through water in a way that corresponds with what? Sacramental baptism which now saves you, 1 Peter 3, verses 20 to 21. Interestingly, the expression that is translated in this verse corresponds is a Greek term that denotes the fulfillment or counterpart of an ancient type. We need not look to the apostles themselves to justify a spiritual reading of the Bible. After all, did not Jesus himself read the Old Testament this way? What did Jesus call himself? A new Jonah? a new Solomon. And in John 2, verse 19, a new temple. Did he not speak to the brazen serpent as a sign that pointed forward to him? In John chapter 5, verse 39, he speaks to how he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacred scriptures. My dear friends, Jesus Christ interprets the Bible in this way. And how beautiful is that? because it is only when we begin to understand the old in light of the new and the new in light of the old that we can even begin to understand how God has worked in salvation history. I mean, how many books are in the Bible? 73? There's 46 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. If there's 46 books in the Old Testament, then book 47 would be what? The Gospel of Matthew, right? How many of you, when reading a book, start with chapter 47. No, you don't do that. No one does that. They start with chapter one. And so by the time you get to chapter 47, you know what's going on. I mean, consider Matthew opens up his gospel with this verse, Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Now, how can you possibly begin to appreciate what Matthew was trying to do if you don't know the story of Abraham or if you don't know the story of David? Again, this is part of the literal sense And at once, the spiritual sense. So you read the whole one verse in its surrounding context, (laughs) one chapter in its surrounding book, one book in its whole the 73 books. Okay? This is what reading sacred scripture is all about. Now, before we jump into anything else, we do not have the right to just pick up the Bible and take a verse, and apply it in a careless or imprudent way. The Ignatius Study Bible reminds us of the memorable cartoon from the 1950s that shows a, a young man poring over the pages of the Bible, and he says to his sister, and pay close attention to this, have you ever done this before? Don't bother me now. I'm trying to find a scripture verse to back up one of my preconceived notions. Huh? <laughs> have you ever done that before? Twisted a verse to prove your point, to justify a preconceived notion. I think maybe we've all done that at least once. At least I know I have. Mea culpa. We have to use the senses of Scripture and the tools before us so as, again, to read sacred Scripture appropriately. Mindful that for 2,000 years, saints and doctors of the church, authoritative figures and interpreters of sacred Scripture, give us much insight into what we are talking about, huh? And so this is why I pull from commentaries. This is why I try to read feverishly as much as I can in the light of, you know, praying with the text so as to bring to you as much as I can without, of course, being too much of a fire hose. <laughs> but anyhow, all right, uh, what else could we say? Well, we should probably speak briefly to author, date, destination, that kind of thing. We might not get even get to the first verse this evening, but what I'm getting into now is foundational and very important to what we're going to get into in the future, so it's worth treating. So, how about Arthur and date? Well, according to chapter 16, verse 8 of the first letter of Saint Paul to the Corinthians, Paul wrote the epistle while staying in Ephesus in Asia Minor, which is today modern Turkey. So, this stay most likely corresponds to the apostle's third missionary journey from AD 53. To 58, when he spent more than two years instructing the young church in that city. And because Paul was writing in anticipation of coming to Corinth after a stay in Ephesus, as we know from chapter 11, we can probably date its composition somewhere in 56 AD. Now, what about Corinth itself? Well, history tells us that Corinth as a city attracted droves of entrepreneurs and droves of tourists who wished to benefit from its economic prosperity and consequently enjoy its numerous pagan shrines, its gladiatorial contests, and, and the popular games that they had every two years. So like many cosmopolitan centers, Corinth had a reputation for shameless immorality and a ruthless spirit of competition. Now, the social makeup of this community really emerges from the epistle itself. We read in this first epistle that some Corinthians were wealthy, others were poor, others were slaves. Ethnically, the Corinthian church was mixed, having a strong presence of both Gentile and Jewish believers. Now, for nearly five years had elapsed between Paul's founding of the church in Corinth and the arrival of his letter. So during his absence, the community had fallen prey to a number of vices that were beginning to fracture its unity and ultimately drag members away from the faith. Although St. Paul had planned to visit Corinth to, we could say, disentangle some of these problems in person, he sent the letter we know as today, the first letter to the Corinthians, to hold things together until his arrival. So in many ways, and we'll see this from one day, to the next, one day to the next, his instructions were tailored to address the information he had received about their struggles. In the end, my friends, Paul was deeply concerned for this church that was getting in trouble. His pastoral guidance is that of a spiritual father aiming to restore peace aiming to restore unity among children by fortifying their commitment in Jesus Christ and certainly to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians is an epistle that is rich both in its literal sense, historical context right, and spiritual sense. And this is why, as I noted from the outset, this study, our study, just not on the first epistle to the Corinthians, but also the second is so invaluable that we might see the significance of what it means to really engage a church that has transcended time and is so applicable. You will be amazed at the number of times you say to yourself, Gosh, that was going on 2,000 years ago because it's certainly going on today. <laughs> and that reason alone is why we're talking about it, right? Let us get the ball rolling before we wrap up and read this opening verse, this opening salutation. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes. Called by the will of God. So Paul's evangelical mission was established not by his own initiative, but on God's initiative, by asserting his apostolic authority. What is Paul doing? But establishing, once again, from the outset, that this is a letter that comes not from him, but the authority of Jesus Christ. God called him. He called him out from this life. He called him out from the life of sin and persecution. If you were to go to Galatians chapter 1, there's some important verses there, and I want to, I'll go ahead and wrap up with this. Galatians chapter 1 verse 13 says this, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Okay, what's going on there? Well, I read those verses because, well, it speaks to his conversion and calling, and you can read the more in-depth version, of course, in Acts 9. But what happened? You know, Paul says he's called by the will of God. Well, he just said it. He was a persecutor of this new faith, of this Christian faith. And once he was knocked off his horse, so to speak, did he just run into the synagogues and preach? Well, if you read the text carefully, not only in Acts, but what he's saying there in Galatians, no. He went off for three years. Why? Because he was the prized pupil. That was Saul before he was Paul of the great Rabbi Gamaliel. Rabbi Gamaliel, or as it's pronounced in the Hebrew, the Gamaliel, right? We read about in Acts 5, was the scholar of scholars. So here you have a man, Saul, who is the prized pupil of the scholar of scholars. He has the Old Testament on his fingertips, and suddenly he's knocked off his horse. He has to make sense of this. So he goes off which some believe to be the Arabian Peninsula and Mount Sinai, to probably have a lot of monoe monos manos with God. Three years he went into retreat, and he comes back, clearly with the desire, doing people to a deeper understanding of the new covenant, does the interview, as the Greek translates, Peter for 15 days, 15 days. What we see in all of his epistles is, in some degree, a reflection of that interview, if you will and ultimately his desire to adhere to the will of God. Amen? Amen. Let us close with, with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen? And God bless you.